1: Independent Melbourne Radio 3RRR.
0: On today's show, from the revelation of his diagnosis with complex PTSD to a meditation on the necessity of touch, the nature of loneliness, the notion of forgiveness in stark opposition to the horrors of colonialism, a relationship with cephalopods, the depth and shape of loneliness, and around it all the idea of love. As a necessity of being and vulnerability as the precondition for truly experiencing it. Rick Morton explores it all and more in My Year of Living Vulnerably, a work that winds in memoir and journalism spanning the author's childhood trauma through the years we at through to the years we've all suffered through the worst plague since the Spanish blue author and journalist Rick Morton joins me soon to discuss his book and the themes it covers as well as the craft behind it
1: Triple R on FM digital online and via the app
0: We make mistakes of nomenclature if we think love is just one thing and not say The way the light makes little furnaces of the rusted leaves when it streaks through the sky at an angle in late late autumn afternoons. Bring me the person who says love is just that spark of romantic desire between human beings, and I will show them Maxwell's equations describing electromagnetism or the weight of grief at a funeral. I would also look... And I mean, really look at the face of a baby as it recognises you on a second visit and study the dive of a peregrine as it tucks its wings into the body and rockets to the ground. That's an excerpt from Rick Morton's My Year of Living Vulnerably, a work that winds in memoir and journalism spanning the author's childhood trauma all the way through to the years we have all suffered through, the worst plague since the Spanish flu. The book roves from the revelation of the author's diagnosis with complex PTSD to a meditation on the necessity of touch, the nature and depth of loneliness, the notion of forgiveness in stark opposition to the horrors of colonialism, a relationship with cephalopods. And around it all, the idea of love as a necessity of being and vulnerability as the precondition for truly experiencing it. Now, author and journalist Rick Morton joins me to discuss his book, the themes it covers and the craft behind it. Rick, a very warm welcome to Backstory.
1: Mel, thank you for having me, which is also something I say to my mum. Um, Thank
0: you. I Actually, I was tempted to start uh, talking immediately about the the themes that you're covering in this book, but because you've set off with a joke, (laughs) I feel like I need to really just jump right into this um, side of things because... I've just quoted an objectively beautiful uh, quote from this book where you, you do offer this vulnerability in terms of how you've used language and you've kind of uh, offered us these these beautiful realisations that are quite poetic. But also throughout, you do use these kind of very broadly drawn similes and metaphors that are leaning into humour. And I did want to ask you about that because this is a book that delves into these extraordinarily um, personal, complex and, uh, you know, absolutely heartrending at times experiences. But I am wondering about the the use of humour. I don't feel like it is entirely a deflection because you are obviously allowing in these moments of vulnerability. But what role does it serve in this book and perhaps in your life?
1: It's, it's, honestly, I, I talk about this with my mum all the time. We have a really dark sense of humour and it's, it's born of adversity and, and trauma and just a really shitty life, to be quite frank, um, for, for many, many years, in fact, well over a decade during the worst of it. And the one thing we never gave up was the ability to laugh. And I think it's really important. And it's also, I think, a service to readers. Um, not that I think it's necessarily a high and mighty one, but it's one where if you come from a difficult background and you've experienced trauma and you don't want you want people to understand but you don't want to burden them um with you know this the saddest story on earth like i do think certainly in my case i try to add some levity and it's also just how i see the world like a light and shade it's always been the way with me i you know i have laughed at really serious misfortune on my own part um because it does tend to weigh less it's kind of like turning gravity off and, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, it's our approach. Like, Mum and I laugh at, you know, we laugh when we run out of money. Uh, I mm. laughed when she fell over in cans when I took her on a holiday. <laughs> it's quite serious. But uh, I was also scared um, for her frailty. And so we laughed because it was a way for us to process things.
0: mm Defying gravity, it weighs less. Beautiful. Uh, but, I mean, it, you aren't afraid to go there with the vulnerability. And and this really tempts me to sort of ask, um, as a writer as well, what is the you know the the vulnerability of writing because there is a a kind of tightrope that you are walking and it is something i was thinking about in this book when are you allowing yourself to really go there and when are you kind of deflecting and how do you weigh up those things how do you give yourself the space to to not be scared to really delve into the stuff that that haunts you or, you know, expose yourself on the page? And, and when are you actually putting up those, those barriers that I suppose or the, or the way of uh, removing yourself from gravity that humour allows?
1: It's, it's a really interesting question because I've read a lot over the years about this tendency, whether I don't know whether it's real or not, but people writing about how young people in particular feel like that they need to add... Um, You know, this confessional nature to all of their writing, and that they need to confess every trauma, every horrible experience in order to make themselves feel worthy. Um, But I do, you know, I don't feel like it's a brave thing on my part to do that because I don't have the fear response when it comes to sharing those things. If anything, it feels self serving because I feel better personally when I do that. And I feel like when I'm being honest, I'm setting myself free. Um, which sounds kind of silly, but it it really is the truth. Like, I mean, I started exploring it with my first book, 100 Years of Dirt, and my confidence has never been better. And, you know, I still have really, really low self-esteem. Um, <clears throat> and I don't really believe that I'm worthy of all of these things, but it's never been better since I started sharing this stuff because it's put me in touch with so many people who really feel shame. And like, shame is the pervasive kind of monster here. And there is no shame in being human. Uh, and I don't think there's any shame in sharing your humanity either. And I guess I have to walk um, you know, walk that talk, I guess. Um, and I do. And I'm not afraid. I'm really not. Um, I mean, in a way, it's a hallmark of anyone who's experienced any kind of trauma in that you feel like the worst thing that could happen to you already has and that everything else is just
0: you know, shuffling deck chairs. Mm, It's it's really interesting because you do cover this and and this is kind of going to bring us back, I guess, in a way to the the original topic uh, that you set off with, which is your diagnosis with complex PTSD from from deep childhood trauma, Uh, you know, I guess this idea of, um, you know, catharsis from writing this, but you do also touch on this idea that, in fact, sharing things in this way is a kind of fear that you don't have, um, in part because of your trauma. Uh, And that, you know, I mean, I'm also tempted to consider something coming from a family of oversharers that, you know, sometimes you can hide in plain sight a lot Better, yeah. that actually there is no better way um you know what you're withholding in a cacophony of sound is is the you know sometimes the greatest secret uh of all and that's perhaps the only way of having a boundary in a very noisy family and speaking from from experience here to what extent is there that going on though that that there is a safety in hiding in plain sight
1: it's uh, it's something I've dealt with a lot, actually. When I when I first moved back into, you know, daily journalism and I was tweeting a lot and I was tweeting, you know, old-school journalists would look at me and go, God, you're oversharing or, God, you're, you really don't have any boundaries, do you? And the thing that always made me kind of amused was that I was like, well, actually, I do. I've got heaps, um, but you wouldn't know um, because this feels like an avalanche to you. But to me, it's... It's not everything, and it never will be, because uh, you couldn't write you couldn't write a million books about what I think inside my head. You just you wouldn't want to read them for a start. But um, you couldn't cover the totality of it all. So, like you know, there are certain essential truths about me as a person that no one will ever know, including my best friends. Um, and and it's vice versa. It's the same when I'm looking into or peering into their minds as well. But it's not like it's not a facade and it's not a strategic thing necessarily. It's just, I, I, it's like you want enough out there that people can sketch you as a, as a person, but you don't need to tell them about, you know, every single little uh, moment that might lead to a pattern of thinking. Um, for me, I've highlighted the initial traumas in my life, you know, my brother being burned and my dad having the affair and abandoning us basically when I was seven and being alone on the cattle station when that happened. But, you know, there have been so many others in my life, and I the, the one that I tossed and turned about the most, including in this book, was the sexual assault I experienced when I was in my mid-twenties, because, you know, for a long time I didn't mention that to anyone, and I didn't think I needed to, but it also occurred to me later on in life that it was something that had affected my thinking um, and and also my relationships um, on top of the early trauma. So, you know, it became important to me to at least try to deal with that in in some kind of open sense. But the rest of it is, I'm just trying to think of a good way to, to, it's kind of like, you know, when you shine a lamp on something, it's like, you know, the rest of the room is somewhere there in the shadow, Mm -hmm. but you're directing it to the features. Um, You're directing the light to the features that kind of bring out the sense of the life that happened in that room. And that's kind of what I'm trying to do with my writing, if that makes sense.
0: Absolutely makes sense, and and it doesn't make sense the form that you've chosen to use. I would say as well that you've used a form that combines uh, memoir and journalism. It's a form that's increasingly common. Um, I was certainly um, tempted to draw at least some comparisons. It's not they're not the same books with um, Alison Crogan, one of your um, colleagues at the Saturday Paper, a, a "Monsters: uh, A Reckoning," uh, in which um, she combines these very personal um, anecdotes about a, a family breakdown with. Um, her own history and relationship with that, and and other more broad topics, um, and you know, drawing in this this research and journalism, you've very much done that, and I think that that does it does give a bit of arm's length at times um, from going for straight memoir. And I do I do think that there is that nature to journalists in a certain uh, to a certain extent. There's an ability to deflect, but I feel like constantly throughout this, you're not. Letting yourself off the hook, or letting your your central protagonist that you've created off the hook, um, in no. terms of this, you're always winding it back into the memoir directly. Can Can you talk about the craft of, of putting this book together?
1: Yeah, it's. Um, I like that. I, I like that way of looking at things because it it always surprises me. Because I have never thought about genre or style when I'm writing. Like, this is, you know, particularly non-fiction, this is the way, this is kind of like my natural default setting. Um, And it always has been, is to kind of, it's like like the the beauty of poetry, right, is to take something micro, um, like a beetle on a leaf, um, to examine something macro, like grief or love. Um, And so you're taking something small and then blowing it up to kind of universal proportions. And my way of operating has always been to do that with my life, but particularly through the prism of my mum, who I adore, and who is just an amazing, strong woman. And so it started in my journalism before I wrote books with the idea of imagining her kind of as the avatar in that world. So when I was talking about social policy, even for things that we didn't directly have experience of. So we grew up in poverty. She was a single mum with three kids. and, you know, she was on uh, the single parent pension, but I've never been on the disability support pension, for example, or, and nor is she. But imagining the same stresses that we were under in this kind of penury and trying to deal with Centrelink was enough for me to try and grasp how it might affect people who do have disabilities who are on the DSP and similarly with people on the National Disability Insurance Scheme. And so I was always using my own family upbringing as a lens. Um, And I think there's something to be said about people who come from any minority background um, or any difficult kind of social disadvantage, that there is at least the chance for increased empathy. Even if you don't necessarily understand directly, you you try to include other um, viewpoints. And so my writing kind of does that naturally because it's just, I was an inquisitive kid, right? I was asking a lot of questions from a very young age. I was fascinated by science and the explanatory power that I had um, for my own, you know, place in the world. And so I do it in my books because uh, that's how I make sense of things, personally. Um, and I know, you know, some people read it and they'll be like, oh, I wish there was more memoir, or I wish there was more of you. And, like, I get it, because when I read a, a good memoir, I want the same thing. Um, but it's also, like, I, I don't feel like there's value in telling my story if I can't relate it to the bigger thing. Um, because it is ultimately just my story. And I want people to understand that, you know, in my case, complex post-traumatic stress disorder has affected so much about my life and that when you understand how it works, you see its DNA everywhere. You see it in the welfare system, you see it in the out-of-home care system, in child protection, in family law, uh, you see it in drug addiction. It's just everywhere. And in order to make people understand how that might play, in those other big fields. I need to make them understand how it works for me.
0: Absolutely. I I want to delve into what it, you know, the heart of this book, which is obviously, uh, as we've alluded, you are delving into various different areas, um, ranging from, just to name a few, the book is divided into very clear sections. Among them, touch, the self, forgiveness, loneliness, masculinity, kindness, beauty, animals... And beginnings, and they sort of encompass uh, a real, you know, uh, like range of interviews of experiences that you have had, winding those things in together. You know, I, I kind of want to look at, you know, starting out really with with what you set out with, which is the idea of touch. And the importance of that, which is something that I think um, I'm not surprised you've started with, given it's, you know, incredibly topical uh, for all of us now, because we have many of us been touch bereft um, over the past 18 months, Uh, you know, we've we've had that separation from other humans we've also had obviously the um the reduction in maybe the ability to see faces which i think is a form of you know visual touch um that you know is also lost can you touch on haha um (laughs) the actual you know nature of this for you because yours very particularly comes in the form of a relationship with trauma and how the lack of touch from a, a platonic male friend uh, really is felt by you on a level that is quite self-shattering.
1: Yeah, yeah. And that's the the great irony of this, of course, is that I this was all planned before coronavirus. Um, you know, when I pitched this book in October 2019, or when I signed the contract, touch was always going to be the first chapter um, because it was so central in my life and it was almost like I'd never seen it talked about. Um, and then, of course, the pandemic happened, and I was like, hey, that was my idea. <laughs> I think you do
0: quip at some point that you're pretty sure that the, that is COVID-19 my fault, because <laughs> yeah, I yeah, wanted I to set off on this journey.
1: On, on more than one level, it feels like it was my fault, because I also got a personal trainer for the first time in my life. <laughs> yeah. uh, me and Bruno had five great sessions together. Um, before everything went um, backwards. Um, but, you know, I'm laughing, obviously. But I, the thing that touched for me was that it's one of those things where it's kind of like air. Um, you don't notice it until you don't have it. And for me, I had spent so long, about a decade of my early adult life um, since I left high school, just rejecting it um, and doing everything I could to avoid it. It made me feel uncomfortable. Um, even when close friends hugged me, it didn't feel like something that I wanted or enjoyed and slowly over those years I just cut it out of my life entirely and the fact of that took a long time to settle on my mind like what it was doing to me because and I make this point in the book but like touch is one of the first things that we sensations that we get as human beings it's the ability to touch and to feel Um, you know babies have a really keen sense of smell um, but it is touch um, that basically guides their development, and without it, you are actually you're taking something very fundamental away from yourself, and something fundamental to the, the human condition, which is this idea of being connected. And now we all think, of course, that we've never been more connected, and, and that's true. Like social media and technology has its place, but we are social animals, and without the kind of sense of caring caressing, loving touch, whether it's romantic or otherwise, um, you actually do um, start to affect not just your cognitive capacity, but your, your body. Um, it has a physical effect. And I found that out firsthand during the pandemic because I was in lockdown with a, um, an ICU nurse called Seamus, who was he's a really um, lovely man who I've known since I was 18, um, who was looking after COVID-19 patients in intensive care. And when he had his first patient, we had to stop our routine of hugging and, and giving each other a platonic kiss, um, like in the evenings or in the mornings. And, it, and it, even though I knew intellectually why that had to be the case, it felt like in the deepest recesses of my mind that I had been cut loose again, um, just mm-hmm. as I was just as I was when I was 24, when my dad you know, told my brother that he thought me being gay was disgusting. And I couldn't rationalise it because the one thing I had that anchored me to a relatively normal life was just switched off, Um, and we ended up breaking the deal because I just couldn't do it. And it sounds really melodramatic, but it was so elemental to me, that experience.
0: It absolutely makes sense. I mean, I have to say... uh you know which is a discussion that you you later talk about in loneliness as well and this is something i felt quite keenly i I've, I've never been someone who felt lonely or at least not when i was alone by choice yeah. um and so you know that's something awful about the distance between two people who are actually in the same room that is horrifying but one thing i really found during lockdown and certainly the first couple of weeks i live alone um i again um, feel fine about that most of the time but I would say two weeks into the hard lockdown, I genuinely had this thought um, that I just wanted to run out onto the street and catch the virus so I could be around humans again. It was so overwhelming uh, that that need suddenly and I, I changed my circumstances within a fortnight of that um, because I realised there was no way I would survive and I think many people have had this quite visceral experience obviously yours had the added layer of of extreme childhood trauma layered on top yeah, of it but um, which you know I, I can only say I'm very glad you've had that um, that person in your life that that could support you through that, but you do very beautifully illustrate this and and horrifyingly illustrate this in this chapter where you draw on you know uh, the horrors of the um the Romanian orphanages under Ceausescu um, where you know those of us who remember um, those images who are around uh, you know uh, old enough to remember that, of children who just had the most horrific, um, I suppose, uh, experiences and as a result, um, you know, all sorts of, of legacy effects from not receiving the basic level of affection that, that children need to grow and that that is a precondition of our existence.
1: It, it, it's a total precondition. And, and this is what, I mean, the Romanian orphanages are, a, it's one of the longest running social experiments in the world. It's the experiment no one wanted to have. But it's there. And the thing that fascinated me most about it was that it was not about the kids in these orphanages being fed a nutritional diet because they were. It was not about them, you know, receiving, you know, the ordinary milestones, the right medications and things like that, because they got all those things. What they didn't get was love in terms of affectionate, tender care. They were not held in any meaningful sense. And rather than just affecting their minds, though, of course, it did, it also stunted their growth. Um, it gave them gastrointestinal issues. Um, they were shorter um, on average than um, other children who were not in the orphanages. So, like, and, and to me, that clearly illustrated the mind body connection between trauma in the brain and how it affects you in the body. Um, these things cannot be separated. And those kids, you know, those were shocking examples of something that happens everywhere around the world, including. Um, in Australia, uh, in the out-of-home care system. And there are reasons why kids in the out-of-home care system cannot necessarily be held in any meaningful way, and it's because of the the horror of sexual abuse. But there is also the the corollary of that, which is, what do we do? What do we do because it is so necessary? Um, And I, here I am, lucky enough to have the overwhelming love of my mother, but still so depleted by the absence of my father, um, and I can't even begin to imagine how any child without either um, manages to do anything in life, and it just it breaks my heart. Um, I remember talking to a foster carer when I was doing a workshop up in Byron Bay, and she was like, "I just she's like I've got foster kids, but I'm not allowed to husband." And she said, "You can see it on their faces that they just want to be cared for equally um, with her natural children, but she, but they are by definition unequal, and it just it's it, it ruins me." Like it it breaks my heart.
0: You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring
1: science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform.
0: Here's an excerpt from the end of the book To various degrees, all skyscrapers around the world must move. To be unbendable in the end is to shatter. All that commitment to unyielding strength will only take a building or a person so far. I like the poetry of that notion. Vulnerability is a design feature that allows us to confuse the wind. If we take our cues from Camus, and we could do a lot worse, to be frank, the stinging blows of an otherwise meaningless world can be absorbed. I think this is a really lovely description that you've given us, Rick, of vulnerability uh, and I thank you for it i've certainly I've already sent it off to a couple of friends this morning when i was I was typing it out um, it is something that really is at the core of and in fact is what you're finishing up in a chapter that entitled beginnings, which is the idea that to allow ourselves to be vulnerable um, is the most important thing for us to be able to experience the world and also absorb things that we, we you know, wouldn't otherwise be able to. Mm. This feels particularly pertinent in the chapter on masculinity. Uh, I think that throughout this book you are winding in the legacy of not just your trauma but, in a sense, a kind of societal trauma. I think it's something that you, you reference the book Traumata and in a sense, that that book does cover this idea that, in fact, patriarchy has created a societal trauma of sorts. And, and it's certainly something that you address in this chapter and throughout the book. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and the reflection of the broader themes that you cover?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it comes back to this idea that men uh, think that they need to be unbendable uh, or that they need to inhabit these traditional roles which have only caused themselves injuries, to be quite honest. And and I make the point in that chapter about, you know, these men's rights groups who are always trying to take away, uh, you know, the spotlight from women who have suffered at the hands of men, particularly in family relationships, by saying, well, men actually experience violence more often. And I'm like, yeah, that's true, from other men. Um, and it's almost always because men are policing themselves against femininity um, or this idea that being feminine is somehow soft and and therefore that being gay, uh, which in their eyes, in straight male view uh, from you know, the heterodoxy, is to be gay, is to be feminine, is to be soft. And therefore all of these things are to, are to be abhorred. And the reason they don't like these things is not because they think uh, that women can overpower them or that gay men can necessarily overpower them, but because they will be overpowered by other men who think the same way. So it's an embarrassment of, you know, their kind of view of shame and how they place it against each other. And the problem with that viewpoint is that it doesn't just affect them. It affects everyone else around them. And in trying to understand this, it's actually not about, you know, blaming straight men, um you know the ones who commit crimes uh should answer to their crimes, but for most people, there are these kind of gray areas where they you know they believe that you know they're not allowed to cry in front of um anyone but certainly not other men or or the women and children in their lives, or they think that they need to be stoic at all at all times, and that does themselves such such damage and I've seen it like growing up, I grew up around you know, in regional Queensland, working-class men, um, men who hit their kids, who uh, hit their their wives or partners, um, or who just emotionally were not available because they thought that was the wrong thing to do. And the damage that does is so severe um, within those family units, but also socially um, at large. And myself, as a gay man, I have imbibed some of this doctrine just from the way I grew up. Like, the kids at high school that I went to school with were just as afraid... As um, being seen to be gay as I was, um, even though I was actually gay. Um, and there were things that you just didn't do around the boys, quote unquote. Um, and then, of course, you've got the other, the corollary of that, or the opposite of that, which is women who think um, that there are things that men need or want that they uh, try to give them to placate them, to make them feel better about themselves when really the work that needs to be done is, is internally. Um, it's, it's in our minds. And that's kind of the original sin, uh, I guess, of this whole project, uh, which is that men can't bend and they can't admit, you know, the, the, all the dimensions of love in their lives.
0: Yeah, you beautifully illustrate some of your imbibing of this, I guess, when you're talking about you know that the time you tried to wear uh, a uh, a pink. I shouldn't laugh. It's lovely. A pink yeah, vest. Yeah, I, I know. Um, it's almost. Ridiculous! It's beautiful, um, you know, and that that there was such a, a you know existential horror associated with wearing this because of what it meant and what message you were sending out about you know who you were as a person, perhaps a perceived notion of your sexuality, or indeed, you know, a challenge to predominant masculine um, stereotypes. I was reminded almost immediately. I don't know if you if you watch the. Um, the show pose but there is um a, a moment when the Billy Porter character is you know taking part in a sort of you know empathy exercise that the the men in the ballroom scene have with the the women the trans women uh, where they literally walk in their shoes so they they do some kind of drag um walk so that they uh they can kind of you know feel what they're sort of judging I guess um and you know, Billy Porter's character just refuses to do it, and it's this this idea of I have fought so hard, um, you know, against the things that my my dad made me feel about myself, um, that I've pushed away this side of myself. This this. This kind of willingness to express things that society sees as feminine, and I was really touched by that part in your book where you sort of, you are talking about these very things, these kind of signifiers of gender that are kind of are false and and assumed, but at the same time go to the heart of of toxic masculinity in a very particular way.
1: It's it's so strange because I tell that story about wearing this pink sweater to my 18th birthday drinks, um, and it's it feels like. To an outsider, I imagine it feels like a little bit of kind of melodrama or exaggeration of the story. But its it's, I I swear to you, it was probably the most... I mean, I remember that night so well because of the fear I had about that sweater. Not because of anything else that happened, but because I was wearing for the first time in my life a pink sweater. um, And I felt like I had betrayed my masculinity, even though I knew internally that I was gay and that also it's just a colour. But I was worried like, about what everyone else felt. And, like, you know, colours, um, newsflash, cannot be gay. They cannot be feminine. Um, they are either liked or not liked. Uh, they are spectrums of, of the, the light spectrum. And it's just... And these things are everywhere. These little shibboleths and, and kind of um, totems about, you know, how we see gender. It's funny because my friend has um, uh, two, two sons, and the eldest now is about three, almost four, and you know he's got these little pink Adidas sneakers, and in the suburb we both live in, um, people have gotten angry at her for, you know, him wearing pink shoes, uh, and having his hair slightly longer. And it's just like, dude, he's like three and a half. He right now he wants to, you know, potentially hijack a digger uh, <laughs> next to the train station. And he's not thinking about cars. So cute. Uh, yeah, and it's just like it's like. Every, and it's, I mean, this is not a new thought, obviously, that all of these things are a social mm-hmm. construct, but we kind of forget in t- talking about them in academic style that these are very real, on-the-ground considerations. Mm.
0: And the totemic kind of horror of it that you describe is, is the legacy of, I guess, these things that seem small but actually are, in fact, everything.
1: I, well, I mean, yep. just, yeah, just watching, like, uh, people be policed. I remember dancing one night at uh, a pub in uh, Brisbane called The Vic and I was dancing with my mate from high school, who's a kind of evangelical Christian, actually, um, who's now married with two kids. But um, he was kicked out because he was dancing "quote unquote" too gay. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he's straight, and I wasn't kicked out. And then I then I felt like kind of <laughs> uh, offended because I'm like, well, was I not dancing gay enough to be kicked out? But it was just it's like this is like a real blokey pub in Brisbane, and I was mm-hmm. just like, he was the charge was essentially you're scaring the other patrons. That's shocking. It's like, what? Like, w- w- on what earth? And this, it just makes me so mad because, like, sorry, I'm rambling, but, like, you see men, and, like, I know men, I know deep down they want these things, but it's like they've been told they have to be the skyscraper that doesn't bend. And, and of course, the fault in that logic is that the skyscraper that doesn't bend collapses. And
0: sometimes um, on people, tomorrow. unfortunately.
1: Yeah. yeah, exactly. It might not be tomorrow, it might not be in 10 years, but there will come a time when you realise that you have made mistakes in your life of uh, uh, shutting these things
0: out. Now, unfortunately, we don't have as much time as I would love to have to continue with our discussion on some of the themes here. Uh, particularly for this uh, next little section that I really want to talk about, and just a, a content warning for people: um, we will, I will be having a brief conversation about sexual assault and uh, and a really horrific uh, historical, um, you know, massacre against uh, Aboriginal people. Um, there are some incredibly deep and dark themes in this book that you cover and, you know, particularly the sexual assault that you've experienced um, with, you know, I feel that you've covered it with a sort of lightness of touch that I can only mm. uh, imagine is a, a legacy of how you're, you're, you've you dealt with it. Um, but it is one that, that does come as something as, of a shock um, towards the beginning of the book um, and, it, and it sets out, I guess, another lay of trauma and, and some of the other themes that you cover and and how you've kind of grown to look at that it very much relates I guess to the conversation we just had about toxic masculinity Um, of course sexual assault is all too often and in fact I would say a fundamental legacy of that in fact Um, you've also covered something else that again is in a section um, titled "Forgiveness," which is really about the limits of forgiveness and, in fact, what the nature of that and reconciliation is, and in it you own that you have an ancestor who, in the 1930s, murdered and abused so many of the Walperee. Uh and in in this horrific fashion, um, and uh, and you know you sort of really grapple with that—that that you are the inheritor, not just of of these toxic, um, masculinist sort of you know ideas that have come down through the generations but also of the the fundamental crime of colonialism as well can you talk a bit about writing this section i can't imagine it was easy
1: no it wasn't and it also felt uh, i did feel a little bit conflicted because i'm like well it's just, just self-serving is is just white guilt um but also i feel like that in itself is a self-serving thing that white liberals think sometimes about like well you know i couldn't possibly change anything so what's the point of addressing it But it felt necessary in this sense because, you know, even if I didn't have this person who we think is um, an ancestor, I'm not. We can't pin it down. But he's got the same surname and he's in the same um, parts of the world where all my family on the Morton side were. Um, Even if he wasn't involved in this massacre, uh, my family I knew for a fact were settlers on the Birdsville Track. They ran cattle stations. They had um, Aboriginal quote-unquote workers um slaves basically um particularly back in the early 1900s and these people the aboriginal people the first nations people took their surname from this man um because that was what you had to do at the time you had to take your surname from the white owners of these stations and so there are indigenous people including really well-known artists um in queensland and the northern territory who share my last name morton M O R T O N. And I always thought as a kid and even as a young adult when I didn't know that much about the world that this was, you know, must have been some marriage way back when that I wasn't aware of because I knew there were relations between white and First Peoples. Um, but they were so often the result of these dramatic, dramatic power imbalances. And so I felt necessary to, certainly when talking about the idea that could we ever, um, could Indigenous people ever forgive us for what we did, and it it, it feels like such an early discussion to have because it's like, well, you can't forgive something that is still ongoing, and you certainly can't forgive something where the perpetrators have not acknowledged what happened. Mm. Now, I felt like I had to acknowledge it just in in this small, um, totally inconsequential way, but I I, I couldn't avoid writing about it.
0: And also there there can't be ever, and I would would say forgiveness even is, is a maybe not exactly the the part it's like uh we have a a psychological problem <laughs> if we don't acknowledge the truth of of where we are and and what happened in the first place to to even come close to uh reconciling our social psyche here in this country
1: it can't be done it wounds both sides um it may, you know white people particularly conservatives may not think it wounds them to deny our history like this but it does in the same way that men who deny themselves the, the true spectrum of feeling and love and emotion don't think it is wounding them, but it does. Um, and so I think those things are, are kind of two sides of the same coin.
0: I want to touch before before we finish up on, and of course that, that topic that we've just opened up is an enormous one and yeah. should be continually talked about. Um, there are a couple of other things in here that, that I thought were just delightful but also extraordinary. You talk... Uh, There's a whole chapter dedicated to animals in it. The thing that delighted me the most... So, yeah, the ce- I was literally stroking my little dog's ears while you were writing about, um, you know, how 10 years after the first generation of foxes are bred for tameness, you get these kind of cuddly, soft-eared animals. Um, and most delightfully, the cephalopod, uh, as you as you point at this most antisocial of creatures can have this sort of electrifying connection um, for a human from their side. Uh, can you talk about writing that, that section?
1: They're, they're just. I mean, I've always wanted to write a whole book about cephalopods, and I'm not a scientist. And then cephalopods had their moment, right? There was, you know, my octopus teacher and um, Julian Baird wrote about them in Phosphorescence, and um, I was already planning to write about them, and then I'm like, oh, my God, they're everywhere. Um, but I, I decided to forge ahead with it anyway because I just love them so much. Like these uh, animals without skeletons, um, or internalized skeletons anyway, uh, who have developed what appears to be... Uh, consciousness or something like it parallel um, to humans. So if consciousness has happened twice, um, once on this planet with humans and we think cephalopods have it, then it happened twice from two different, completely different ways of being in the world. I don't know why there's a drill somewhere right near where I'm talking, (laughs) (laughs) but they're so clever and and not just in the way that dogs or dolphins or, or whales appear clever to us, but in ways that they appear to solve problems and use tools for future use. Like they have a sense of mental time travel, which is what allowed human beings to, uh, you know, build a civilization. Was the ability to imagine the future, and it looks like people have that to some degree, and I just find that so astonishing.
0: I am now officially obsessed. I have to say, Rick Borden, I can't believe uh, we've nearly finished the hour, and there is that so, went very quick. I know, it really did. There is still so much more to, to discuss in this, from the nature of consciousness and, subconscious and unconsciousness, or subconsciousness rather, uh, kindness, uh, which I thought about as a colleague came in and offered me a cup of tea or coffee, and I suddenly felt extremely emotional. So many uh, things like that um, that are so relevant to us at the moment. I'd like to thank you. Rick Morton for your book uh, and for speaking with me today on Backstory.
1: Mel, no, you are an absolute delight. Thank oh, you for having
0: me. Well, it's a furiously mutual feeling. Thank you so much. That was Rick Morton who uh, spent uh, this hour with me discussing his book, My Year of Living Vulnerably, which is out now through Fourth Estate. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7.